So the other day, um, I was at the where was I? But I saw candy cigarettes for sale at a store, and I thought those had been illegal for like a long, long time. Really? Yeah, they're like um, uh, brass knuckles. You know, like uh, they're 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 just totally illegal now. Oh, not nah, I mean, but those weren't nearly as much fun as the uh, candy coat hangers. Those were that was probably the most fun I ever had as a kid. Uh, yeah, I liked the um, the broken jar of glass that was made out of sugar and fake blood. Yeah, no, that was that was fun. Um, it had its moments. Uh, I think it gave my parents a heart attack or two, but um, that was pretty good. You know what was very short lived on the market? What um, the uh, the candy guns, where you had to put the barrel in your mouth to eat them. Because the the mm-hmm. handle was plastic, that was. I think they sold that for like three days before they cracked down on it. Now, how about the laffy taffy noose? <laughs> I mean, it's not an effective. I mean, it's not an effective candy, but it's also not an effective tool. I mean, I I don't know who who came up with that one. Well, could could you shake the laffy taffy? <clears throat> I I guess I could. Oh, um, that's all you need it for then. It's time, time for a thrilling story of romance, adventure, mystery, anything with an expired copyright. It's time for another Interrupted Tale. Oh, hello everyone and welcome to uh, another episode of Interrupted Tales. Uh, the show where my friend and I take turns reading stories to you, the listener, uh, while the other person constantly interrupts. Um, as always, I am Rob, and this is my friend Alan. Hey, Rob. What do we have this week? Well, this week we've got a, a, a rather ribald tale. Um, it's from the pages of Saucy Stories magazine, uh, dated August 1st, 1922. So it's old, and it's owned by... The people. The so now it's time to curl up in your favorite chair, grab and grab a drink, while I read you this week's tale. Okay, this story is "No Place for Husbands" by Russell Holman. It's uh, it's the second story in the magazine, and uh, if you want to follow along, you can go to eBay. Um, we'll start off with. Uh, Chapter 1. When the five most expensive medical specialists ever assembled under one roof gave John R. Harlan up for lost, and the old gentlemen preserved their reputations by passing gently away two days later, the Broadway After Midnight set lost one of its picturesque members. Now, Rob, is uh, Broadway After Midnight, uh, refresh my memory, is that hookers or Uber drivers? Well, in 1922, it was hookers. Now it's Uber drivers. Um, next year, it will just be uh, drones dropping naked people. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Drone, I mean, our drone future. Okay. It's, 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 I'm, I'm not going to tell you all about the singularity. Read a book. All right. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but back to the story. Uh, not old John R. himself. My no. He had always been too busy guarding the Harlan Millions and the half-century-old banking house of Harlan and Company to give ear to the jazzy call of the wild. 
No, John R. had led as calm and Comstockian a social life as a Brooklyn tinsmith. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> real real party dudes, tinsmiths. Been to a couple ragers with the tinsmiths myself. Oh, I I don't know about the tinsmiths, but I was really in with the Cos uh, Comstockian crew at college. Oh, we got baked. Uh, we'd we'd go out and play ultimate and hacky and yeah, you they know, seem like an ultimate crowd. Yeah, it was just pretty rad. So you know, different but but still fun. If back, uh, <laughs> if a financier had ever experienced an urge to dash out and sow a wild oat or two, the seed had all been passed along to his son Jack. That is the Jack of the pre nineteen fifteen era. Yeah, I don't. I didn't get this. Is that is they referring to future story points, um, or are they just sort of quizzing us about the Battle of the Somme? Well, you know, the state of the American education system is so bad. I, I think it's always important to teach people about uh, about what happened. But I guess, I guess, um, guess pre nineteen fifteen though. Well, what it's really I mean, it's about a, it's a real turning point. Well, it's about the lend lease program. Yeah, so okay. I don't think I don't think you have to read too deep to really okay. understand that. All right. During Jack Harlan's prep school days in Lawrenceville, he first began to plumb, in vacation periods, the fizzy world that lay behind the blinking lights of Broadway, and learned that almost any chorus girl would forget almost anything for a good-looking youth with a quota of the Harlan fortune lining his pockets. Uh, uh, oh, my name? Oh, I can't remember her. <laughs> da -da -da -da. I, now I have nothing but... Chorus Girl song stuck in my head. Um, by the time he reached freshman year at Princeton, Jack had graduated into leading ladies and stars and, as an alter alternative to the footlight cuties, was <laughs> gadding about from cabaret to cab with the Flapper Society set. Okay, I'm just going to take an aside here and say, Jack sounds awesome. Like, yeah. Is that, why is the story not just called Jack is awesome? Jack, uh, Jack out on the town. Jack, Jack, jazz, in the town. Jack jazzing My it up. Jack. Oh, he's jazzing it all, all over the city. Um, <clears throat> his first year out of college, Jack devoted exclusively to his two worlds of pleasure. Musical comedy queens passed the word around that he was a nice kid. Underdressed dowagers titled him a wild, irresponsible young man, my dear. Now, <laughs> to be fair, it does not take much for a dowager to be underdressed, right? <laughs> well, it's wet t-shirt night at the yeah, uh, bridge, okay, okay. bridge club every yeah. Sunday. Um, <laughs> Flappers felt a thrill at being seen with such a handsome Don Juan. And John R. Harlan, after trying threats, pleading, and bluster to get his son to settle down in the banking business, gave up the task. Having completed Broadway... <clears throat> The Westchester Roadhouse sector and Greenwich Village, Jack set out gaily for Paris under such alibi as, quote, studying art, purposing to do most of his studying at the Folie Bourgeois and the Demondaine Cafés of the Quartier Latine. Yeah, the, the Demondaine Cafés. They have fantastic beignets. <laughs> oui, oui. Uh, a... Cablegram reached him on the day he landed at Cherbourg. It announced the sudden serious illness of his father. Yeah, I mean, if five guys said your dad's dead, I mean, it seems serious. 
Is that what it takes? Is it is five the number? It's five five old gentlemen doctors. They tell you, uh, well, I don't think he's going to make it because technically he already passed. It could be a big deal. You might want to come up. Oh, the rich. They really do live different lives than us. Um, Jack caught the next steamer home. Not a Cleveland steamer. Um, arriving in time for 10 minutes of conversation before the stricken man lapsed into permanent unconsciousness. During those 10 minutes, Jack Harlan's attitude on life abruptly changed. The old man used his last seconds on earth to pour his heart out to his son. Carefree Jack had always loved his father, and he had never before realized what Harlan and company meant to a Harlan. What? I mean, you... You want me to do a joke there? A man just died, Rob. Well, I thought that maybe, you know, something funny could become out of it. Like, uh... Just, just save your dignity. Keep going. Fine. A week later, the young man rode soberly down to Wall Street in the subway and walked into the stern stone banking building of Harlan & Company. He presented himself to Amos Faraday, the senior vice president and his father's closest friend, and announced that he wanted to learn the business. And that he was Batman. Wait, no, they, sorry, that was uh, that was Batman oh. Begins. Uh, um, okay, I got a little confused. Uh, okay. Far- Faraday was pleased, though skeptical, and took Jack for a trial. You get five jacks for one cent, and then every <laughs> month we send you another jack, and you get to decide whether you want to keep that jack. <laughs> But the great thing is, is that if you use like your dorm room address, they're going to keep sending jacks and you're never going to pay because you're going to move in a semester. Yeah, awesome. you get all that. They're never going to sell. In fact, I th- I heard the FTC says it's it's illegal for them to try to charge you for those jacks. No, it, absolutely. You never signed up to get all the jacks and these jacks keep coming and coming and coming. And soon you've got a whole pile of unwrapped jacks. And they're not doing anybody good. And, you know, it's just, it's a Ponzi team is what I'm trying to say here. It's a Ponzi team? A Ponzi team. It's yep, you got it. Whip crack team of Ponzi's. All right. Why don't, why don't you keep on the road here? <laughs> Jack's, uh, let's see. In a year, Jack Harlan had disappeared and John R. Harlan, rising young financier, had stepped into his place. Jack's frivolous past was as dead as if he had suffered a stroke of mental aphasia. Oh, what a cute, cute little simile that is. <laughs> it was a very common simile in, in 1922. Okay. Um, Faraday and the others were frankly astounded. But young Harlan had brains. He had inherited much of his father's natural flair for finance. And once his veneer of frothiness was rubbed off by hard work, his, <laughs> his, his, his progress was not so astonishing as it seemed. Mm, yeah, I'd like a non-fat almond milk cappuccino with a veneer of frothiness. Thank you. You know, I don't like a veneer of thro- frothiness. Be real with me. Just give me the full frothiness, okay? Uh, yeah, um, excuse me. If you have more than a veneer, it ruins the Arabica beans. <laughs> there was no question about the hard work. Jack never appeared at the 12 till daylight resorts. When he went to the theater, it was to sit in a box with Faraday or some other safe and sane business acquaintance. In two years, Faraday was giving him responsible work to do. Two years, Jesus. (laughs) It's a a hell of an internship program (laughs) when you literally own the company. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we we could start you at a salary, but um, hey, why don't you just go get the mail for a while? <laughs> it's like it's like the uh, show Arrow without anything fun. Um, in two years, Faraday was giving him responsible work to do, and then John Jack seemed out of place. Now went to war as a lieutenant of artillery. Uh, well, young man, you've you've slept with a ton of chorus girls, and you're awfully rich. I'm sure you'll do great at ballistic trajectories. <laughs> he came back with his ambition to take his late father's place in Harlan and Company unchanged. Faraday was getting old. The name of John R. Harlan began to appear upon the directories of some of the Harlan companies once more. Chapter 2 It was about eight years after he had thrown the jazz life overboard that John married. That really makes it sound more like he just kicked a heroin habit really the jazz life yeah with all those hot snare cigarettes and the h h <laughs> you know the the high notes are high but the low notes are low it's the jazz life for you <laughs> he was 28 a full-fledged partner in the harlan banking house If Wall Street had once laughed at the idea of Wild Jack Harlan succeeding to his father's position in the world of money, it has since changed its tune. John had inherited the Harlan money and keenness. The keenness. Now, which do you think was more important? I'm going to say the money. Ooh, 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 ooh. ooh. The money. Take the money. Take the money. The money. Yeah. 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 Good call. Uh, Better see old Harlan which for many years had been a kind of slogan in financial circles, and which for a time had been altered to Better See Faraday, was now Better See Young Harlan. It's great, great <laughs> slogans. Well, wow. it really took the whole brand agency to come up with those three. Well, they had to do it by hand back in those days. So, you know, branding was a little tougher. Mm-hmm. During John's renaissance, Amos Faraday, once convinced that he was in earnest, had been friend as well as mentor. Faraday, who was a widower, often invited John out to dinner in his big house in Upper Fifth Avenue or at the Union League Club. Yeah, the Union League Club. Let's talk business and play some rugby. (laughs) Racquetball? Mm? Hmm? They would continue their discussions over long black cigars which John at first disliked heartily to smoke, but decided were rather more diplomatic than cigarettes. At dinner one evening at Faraday's, John met Marjorie. My daughter, home from Wellesley for a holiday, Faraday introduced her, Frank pride in his voice. A few months previous, Jack's pulse would have raced at the sight of such a girl as Marjorie. But now his dick was as limp as a (laughs) lamprey on Percocet. That's business for you folks. Uh, And he would have started glibly, adroitly, to interest her. At that, his heart skipped a beat or two. But Harlan quickly brought it back to normalcy by assuring it that there was no room in his present scheme of things for girls. Especially very pretty girls with creamy skin and large blue eyes and golden hair as smooth as velvet like Marjorie's. He attacked his grapefruit earnestly and said little more <laughs> than the conventions required. <laughs> now, if that's, if that's, <laughs> if that's not a metaphor for uh, desire, uh, buried desire, I don't know what it is. He attacked that grapefruit I earnestly. Think, 
I don't know that it is a metaphor. I think that's just the sexual act of grapefruiting uh, mm. described w without um, without detail. Oh, have you ever seen uh, Two Girls, One Grapefruit? Do not Google it. Nobody Google that. Um, she went back to college, and it was not until her summer vacation began six months later that John saw her again, this time at the Faraday's summer home on Long Island Sound. He spent a weekend there and discovered some reassuring things about Marjorie. She wasn't a flapper. Her stockings reached above her knees, and she didn't don spinster-shocking thigh-high bathing suits or nor smuggle cigarettes out in the canoe with her. Well, <laughs> okay. I right, know. Smuggle cigarettes out in the canoe mm -hmm. with her. He's mm -hmm. definitely talking about prison. <laughs> and is that where they hide the cigarettes? The canoe? <laughs> I, I mean, I've seen Oranges of the New Black. I mean, I have not seen Oranges of the New Black. <laughs> What's the name of that Bond girl whose last name was Trench? There should be like a Susie Canoe or something. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, she was rather serious minded, though not oppressively so. And oh, <laughs> oppressive. Oh, she's smart. What a burden. <laughs> oh, but, you know, she's smart, but she doesn't really talk about it much. So it's okay. You know? Oh, but uh, I really feel like she just flaunts her, her privilege uh, for being so serious. Oh, she's so serious. How privileged <sighs> is she? She just shoves that seriousness in everyone's face. Oh, that yeah. bitch. Uh, um, anyway, um, she was also quite keen for things like family, good taste, and morality. She was small, trim, and completely beautiful. I, I feel like the order of that was uh, pretty much how men would think. You know, oh, she liked family. She had good taste. She, she was very moral. Oh, but she was super hot, dude. Super hot. <laughs> also, you should see her canoe. <laughs> and is she keen? Ooh, keen. John decided that even a sober young financier was quite safe in not battling the overwhelming impulse to fall in love with her. A month after he returned from the war to Harlan and Company, he took up with Marjorie where he had left off. I probably in the canoe. The setting was an engulfing divan in front of a crackling fire in the Faraday living room. Um, uh, hold on, hold on, Rob. Now, I don't, you know, I don't like to give you notes on your performance here, but I. I don't hear crackling. Oh, it's I, I. You know what? Could you set the scene a little? You know what? Ever since I had a that little, uh, little uh, a little okay. pop. All right, hold on, hold on. All right. Okay, this is that good. More, more crackle, more crackle. Ah, 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 get the fire extinguisher! Get the fire extinguisher! Roar, flames, okay. roaring! All right, flames. You know, there you go. Okay. Scene set. <laughs> He moved closer to her. I say, Marjorie, I guess you know I love you. John, once so skillful with women, fumbled and added brightly, don't you? Marjorie, the yellow glow from the log showed, was mildly excited. Yes, for she was tepid in love. Uh, likewise, a little troubled, as if there were an agree this were an agreeable but disturbing thing with which she had expected to conjure some time. But she answered bravely, I know you do, John. Then, allowing her heart to usurp her tongue, I, I love you too, John. 
and yielding her lips to his and her soft body to his embrace. When John had departed, when John had departed, Marjorie invaded her father's library. Get down. Get the (laughs) fuck down now. If anybody even looks at a book, this guy gets it. (laughs) Down, down, down. She's got Dickens. She's got... (laughs) You do not want to be in that room right now. (laughs) I will fuck the shit out of anybody who makes a move. She's got first edition Henry James. Everyone down. Uh, All right. So um, let's see. She climbed upon the arm of the great leather chair in which Faraday was perusing a financial journal. John has just asked me to marry him, she announced. Her father smiled as if this announcement were neither displeasing nor unexpected. I'm glad, he said simply, and then looking at her more closely. But why so serious looking about it? Stop oppressing me! (laughs) Marjorie placed an affectionate arm around his shoulder. Why? It's something I should be serious about, isn't it, Dad? Of course, but do you love John? Yes. Marjorie slipped half into his lap. Dad, wasn't John once sort of wild? Didn't he used to play the Broadway cabarets and go around with actresses and all that? Mrs. Schuyler Hicks was telling me the other day. Don't believe what those old frumps tell you, Marjorie. Uh, A venereal disease is a myth, honey. (laughs) I dare say the boy was somewhat of a high flyer in college. Uh Yeah. Uh Dave's not here, man. Jazz life for life. Uh, And the first year or so after he got out, but what youngster with too much money isn't? But he settled down when his father died, and I'll vouch for it that he's been pretty near a model young man ever since. You don't think there's a chance of John's, well, backsliding? (laughs) Okay, no. Whoops! Whoops! No, I thought it was your... No, I I didn't mean it. Um, (laughs) longing for a touch of the old life, do you, Dad? I should die if... Faraday laughed and kissed her cherry mouth. Um... Is that is that the thing your dad is thinking about when he kisses you? And she's on his lap, and yeah, it's it's uh, it's the twenties. I should say not. John's one hundred percent business now. Don't worry your little head about such things. If you love him, marry him. So she did. They journeyed to Bermuda on their honeymoon, John's first long outing in many years. And by the time they returned, their cozy new home at Long Hills in Jersey, within easy commuting distance of Wall Street, was completed. And their slow dissolution into a meaningless suburban life begun. I I think I saw that uh, Kate Winslet Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Um, Chapter 3. John Harlan decided that he was ideally happy. He had long, he, he had one of the nicest homes in plutocratic Long Hills. He thought no woman could possibly be so naively charming as Marjorie. And Harlan and company was going like a house of fire. (laughs) Is that that the business terminology? That's that's how they put it in the SEC filings? They're like, uh, uh, well, uh, we're looking at a a roaring fourth quarter with a a very uh, high blue level of flame. 
I, I think it's more attributed to the fact that they every few years they'd have to uh, have a mysterious fire at headquarters. Wink, wink. It's like that, uh, res- <laughs> like that restaurant in town that every, that happens every ten years or so. Oh yeah, yeah. Marjorie managed a corps of servants like a little blonde Napoleon. John's Wall Street Journal was always by his breakfast table. The butler awaited him at the door with his hat and stick in the morning, so there was no possible chance of his missing his train and collected them at night. The Harlands play billiards, golf, and double dummy bridge together for six months without a single altercation. This is probably a record. I know double dummy bridge is a real thing. I know you got the dummy hand, and the, but that sounds stupid. <laughs> this is just like double dummy bridge. Mm. Mm. Uh, thanks. I like canasta. What I like is how how approachable and uh, that lifestyle really is, and and how it speaks to all of us. You know, nights of billiards, golf, and double dummy bridge. It's that's yeah. that's America that's, right there. That's the American dream. We're all living it. There was a single disturbing thing about Marjorie. Even about this, John didn't quite know whether to be annoyed or flattered. <laughs> Just disturbingly flattered. <laughs> mm. Well, I really like, it makes me feel good, but. Uh, uh. He became aware of it at first at a Saturday evening dance at a Long Hills Country Club. Mingling among the smart crowd on the clubhouse veranda, John was introduced by a neighbor, with slightly malicious aforethought, to a 19-year-old flapper named Gladys Grayson. No, not real. Uh, Gladys Grayson is uh, like totally a Stanley comic book character. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's Robin's uh, stepsister. Uh, oh, Dick, okay. Dick Grayson, Gladys Grayson. She's a flapper. He's worthless. You know, it, it perfectly mm-hmm. fits. Gladys he ruined a great franchise. Sure, <laughs> he, he wears pants now. That's that's comforting. Uh, Gladys possessed a long, slender chassis. <laughs> oh God! I you know. <laughs> I know, I know this story is completely sexist and everything, but it was 1922 and they were already sexually comparing women to cars back then. Uh, uh, she's got a, a slender chassis, two big headlights lit by tallow candles. Uh, and man, when she gets going, she plods along slower than a horse cart. <laughs> oh, but you got to crank her to get her started. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I, I do know because the car has a crank that you have to turn to get it started. Yeah, see, I didn't That's... have to explain it. Okay, there you go. <laughs> uh, she had black, curly, bobbed hair, flirty eyes, and a weakness for good looking men older than herself. She had absorbed two rather hefty slugs of gin out of her last partner's flask. I bet you're a shake a mean toddle, Mr. Harlan. <laughs> what? You shake a <laughs> mean toddle? Yeah, and I bet you can jiggy your crunk like nobody's business, mister. <laughs> I think I think there's a missing letter, and she said, I bet you can shake a mean toddler. That really takes the story in a different direction. Yeah. <laughs> I, I bet you shake a mean toddle, Mr. Harlan, she gushed, immediately upon sizing him up as a new and excellent prospect. Come on, let's go. A Negro band, imported from Broadway, was emitting spasms. (laughs) What? Yeah. Okay, no. I'm just saying, uh, okay, 
Do you see where my hand is here? It is right. on the bus pull cord. Okay, Rob? Uh-huh. All you got to do is say is say uh, the word, okay? You just let me know, and we get off this wild ride, okay? Okay. I'll let you know. So far. Just whoop. Oh, just, nope. This is yeah. our stop. Wait a minute. We were, we were on board the bus, and then, nope, this is our stop, okay? Good call. Uh, keep me honest uh, and pull the cord when you need to. Uh, so, uh, but I got to say one more time, just, just to get it out. A band no, 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 no. Just uh, you, go ahead. A, a Negro band imported from Broadway was, was emitting spasms of syncopated din. Mm, it's on the cord. Gladys tugged at John's elbow. She placed an expectant arm about his shoulder. He felt that there was no help for it. So he danced. As they wove in and out over the crowded floor, Gladys rested a flushed cheek against his chin. And John wondered if she intended to fall asleep in his arms. Oh, that's how you know you're a good dancer. (laughs) Then he caught a glimpse of Marjorie dancing sedately with a white-haired gentleman. And the eyes of Marjorie were upon Gladys and Gladys's partner. And the eyes were quite horrified and reproachful. Marjorie said nothing about it until she and John were preparing for bed early Sunday morning. Did you enjoy your dance with Miss Grayson, John? She asked innocently. I can't say that I did, he answered promptly. She was half boiled. Uh, Yeah, yeah, and I was half cocked, too, if you know what I mean. And we were over easy, if you get my drift, and we were both... Dry humping, if you can read between the lines of my articulations. <laughs> Sorry, dry humping. Uh, he, uh, let's see. So she's half boiled. They're have, uh, they're they're dry humping. Okay. He wondered why his wife had taken the trouble to discover the flapper's name. There were several other occasions. He, of necessity held Polly Armitage's hands while he was teaching her the proper way to grasp a niblick. <laughs> Whoop! Uh, uh, but, but honey, the, the niblick, if she doesn't grasp it right, I mean, it's a niblick, you know, a, a niblick. Honey, 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 look, it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime ch- chance. We've got a niblick. I'm grasping her hand. It's never going to happen again. Who niblicks anymore? You can't find Netflix these days. No. Let's see. After a proper way to grasp a Niblick and a troubled, reproachful look. It came into the eyes of Marjorie, who was standing near. He had discussed investments with rich, vivacious Mrs. Patton in a rather dark corner of the clubhouse veranda because there were no vacant chairs anywhere else. And Marjorie, discovering them, had betrayed by her manner that she thought they were talking something less impersonal than bonds. Mm, T-bills? T-bills. Definitely. It's the way to go. Plastics? Maybe. It dawned upon John that his wife was jealous in a vague, well-bred way of any woman who paid unusual attention to him. (laughs) She seemed to feel that he needed protection against their designs, real or fancied. Not that Marjorie's solicitude made him impatient. No, not not impatient, just, you know, oppressed. <laughs> I just want women to worship me. What's so wrong with that? He loved her the more for it and vowed that he would not cast as much as an appraising glance at another woman, 
even though Flapperdom's loveliest were to toss themselves at his curly black head. You go, Flapperdom. Just <laughs> go on and toss yourselves at curly blackheads. <sighs> Chapter four. John Harlan had bad news. He was already dead at the beginning of the story. Dun, dun, dun. What a twist. Well, no, I mean, he was dead at the beginning oh, wait. of the story. He, John he, Harlan was. That's, that's right. See, that's pretty bad news. That's, it is. Let's, you let's, you're, you I, can go. You, yeah. 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 Well, I'll, I'll reflect on this later. He hadn't possessed the nerve to spring it upon Marjorie at dinner the evening previous. They had not spent a single night apart since their wedding, and he knew that she would feel as badly about it as he did. So he saved the news for breakfast, when the necessity of making his train would get it over with quickly. Well, my hat and stick are ready. I gotta go, gotta go, baby. <laughs> I've got to take a little trip to California soon, Marjorie, dear. He said across the table to her as casually as possible. Why, John, are, are you ill? Alarmed. That's all it says, by the way. Just alarmed. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, no business. One of our big subsidiaries, the Pacific Fruit Company, is to be reorganized. No, now the Pacific Fruit Company. Do you do you like them or the Ohio Express better? No, no, Tommy Rowe. I think Tommy Rowe is definitely the best. I like the 1910 Fruit Stripe. Or, uh, no, no, the, no? The, that was you already. It was a 1910 Fruit Cup Company joke, <laughs> Rob. Well, the PK lost me at the Pacific. Uh, uh, just move I, on. I'm more intrigued about how it's going to be reorganized. Is he going to go over there and be like, okay, guys, all right, bananas on the left. Let's put the oranges over here next to the wall. Jeez, geez, guys, you got grapes and plums mixed together? What, what am I doing Why aren't here? there any jackfruits? Come on. <laughs> I told you guys explicitly. Jackfruits, jackfruits, jackfruits. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody from the office had to be on the spot to handle the thing. Yeah, and that's me. Johnny, on the spot, it's my name, honey. I gotta go. Your father doesn't feel equal to the trip, so I'll have to tackle it. I'm awfully sorry. Marjorie told herself firmly that she was no weepy Victorian bride. When in California, where in California, dear? San Francisco? Are you going to San Francisco? And when do you start? Will there be a flower in your hair? John, tossing aside his napkin, quite ignored the sedate butler and, easing around the table, lifted Marjorie's tulip-petaled chin in his hands and kissed her upon the lips. It's Los Angeles, dear, and I must start day after tomorrow. I'll be hot as the dickens going out on the Santa Fe, but it's the only route. Yeah, yeah, it'll just be me and a bottle of crackling rosy in the wide rails of America. But uh, uh, really, it's just business. It's just business. <laughs> Marjorie looked up at him cautiously. You, you wouldn't like me to go with you? Oh, I really don't think that would be wise, dear, he said sincerely. Eight days in stuffy Pullmans for 48 hours in Los Angeles, with the temperature there about 110? You wouldn't like it. Uh, 110. Now, is Los Angeles inside of Death Valley? or, Well, I mean... It was 1922, so there's probably been a lot of continental drift since then. Well, yeah, it, that's the whole the whole 
um, the whole area of California and Baja California, they're actually about uh, 12 inches higher because of that. So they're way right. closer to the sun than everyone right. else. Right, and they have all those earthquakes, and then they probably, yeah, yeah, so you're, you're right. It, yeah. was, it was Death Valley, okay. She agreed, a bit reluctantly. The next night, she helped him pack his bag, and in the morning accompanied him to the Pennsylvania station in New York. He kissed her goodbye many times, but just before the ruthless gate clanged between them, she thought of something more. John, Los Angeles is where the movies are, isn't it? You won't fall in love with any of those pretty stars, will you? Behind her banter, John recalled later, there was a somewhat anxious tremor. Oh, what's that? I can hear you, honey. There's a chugga chugga choo choo, and I, uh, I, so Los Angeles, but movies start to Bye! Beautiful women in Los Angeles, honey. I don't know what you're talking about. Chapter 5. John described his four days in a dusty Pullman minutely to Marjorie in letters mailed from Chicago, Kansas City, Dodge City, Albuquerque, and Los Angeles. Arrived at his destination, he discovered, to his chagrin, that the refinancing of the Pacific Fruit Company would be a far messier matter than he had anticipated. Well, they probably kept trying to squeeze more out of the deal. <laughs> mm. We're going to keep that joke in, right? No, we're going to cut it. <laughs> Four days of intensive, intensive conferences in stuffy rooms, and the end was not yet. John's brain was fagged and in need of stimulant. Um, are you going to pull the cord on that one? Oh, no, no, Mike. <laughs> Our, our stop is coming up. Don't worry. Uh, okay. okay good, good, good. We're almost halfway done with the ride. Uh, the other banking men, being congenial old boys and appreciating Harlan's importance, were quite willing to entertain him during his few leisure hours. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, we're just going to chalk up those last couple sentences to antiquated phrasing. <laughs> I am sure there were many men in Los Angeles at any decade ready to entertain him at a moment's notice. Uh, but he thought it wise not to accept. He expected every day to be his last in Los Angeles, and he did not wish to make any encumbering engagements. Evenings he spent in his room at the luxurious Hotel Envoy, thinking up new things to write to Marjorie and working on the refinancing papers. <clears throat> um, yes, it was only 109 today, but you'd still hate it. <laughs> I saw a bug. Love, John. <laughs> Um, let's see. At 10 o'clock, he turned in. The blistering heat of the day having been succeeded by the cool, sleepable evening that the California boosters cherish so highly. So far outside of business acquaintances, he hadn't spoken to a soul. Harlan, naturally friendly and gregarious, was in need of a familiar voice and a little non-business companionship. Yes, uh, such a long day of financial business and stocks, and I feel the need to pump and dump in a casual setting. That's a that's a stock joke. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> the old pump and dump. That's... I th I thought yeah I thought we were uh, that's what I figured. Um, <laughs> which is probably the chief reason why I didn't follow his first impulse and turn an arctic shoulder to Peggy Dubois when she tripped by on her way to a vacant table and discovered him dawdling over an after-dinner cigar in a comparatively cool corner of the Envoy dining room. Why, Jack Harlan, cried halting Peggy, 
recognition suddenly leaping into her lively black eyes. Haven't seen you in a pup's age. A pup's age. So somewhere between zero and 21 years. Seems about right. John had always possessed a Roth-like memory. Peggy Dubois, Follies, played around with her when he was at Princeton. A game, good scout. Well, I'm not even going to try to parse what sexual positions he's <laughs> referring to there. Let's just say that if you can do the good scout, you get some badges. Well, after all, why not? He was 3,000 miles away from home and lonesome. She was diverting and as young and pretty as ever. He could at least talk to her for a moment. He intended to say, how do you do, Mr. Bois? But as he rose and her friendly face came closer, he heard himself greeting her cheerfully. Why, hello, Peggy. Had your dinner? She hadn't and accepted the chair you opposite. Eat that? <laughs> hey, uh, Peggy. Uh... I mean, I see it right there. You got to eat it? You had it? You had it? You had it. You had, it. You had your oh, dinner? I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat it. You, you had your dinner? You, or do you just want to order breakfast? Huh? Huh? <laughs> She hadn't, and accepted the chair opposite him. John leaned back and allowed her to do the talking. She chattered amiably through the oysters. <laughs> well, it's so good to see you. I, I do so miss your company. Oh, God. <laughs> All I can hear is the slurp. <laughs> That will, te- that will haunt my dreams. All right. Uh, she chattered amiably through the oysters and heavy, expensive stuff to demitasse and cigarette. Her language was slangingly picturesque. It was a relief to John's figures-filled brain. Peggy was in the movies, she told him. Hal Harris comedies. Wore a one-piece bathing suit and cavorted spicily before the camera at Venice and other beach resorts. Oh, yeah, Venice. Oh, that Peggy. She a spicy cannelloni, that one. <laughs> her present job was somewhat of a come down for her, she assured him. But times be tough and ladies must live. How about you, Jack? She inquired. You're married, aren't you? I've seen pictures of you and her in the Sunday picture sections. She's awful cute. I've heard about the big league things you've been pulling off in Wall Street, too. Broker friend of mine here in Los Angeles says you're the smartest banking man in America. Lord, imagine that. And a couple of years ago, I was getting stewed with you at Bustin' Boys and stuffing in wheat cakes at the 59th Street Child's. <laughs> what? St- stuffing in wheat cakes? Is that like the Roaring Twenties equivalent of nachos? Uh, yeah, I think it's the Jumbo Slice equivalent or, uh, you know, the 4 a.m. falafel. Yeah. Oh my God. I've, you know, let's just rip some fat clouds and and then we'll go get some wheat cakes. What do you think, man? Dude, I am in wheat cakes in my mouth now. Um, and keeping just enough sense in my head to prevent the taxi driver from robbing robbing you of your last nickel. Oh boy, the world do move, and some go up, and some go down. But honest, Jack, I am proud of you. When I find your photo in the paper, along with a lot of other stiff-bosomed gents, I show it to the other girls and state, Well, mesdames, not long ago I, in person, was playing around with that wealthy lad. 
At first, this vivacious ghost from his past visibly disturbed John. Are we going to head into a Ghosts of Girlfriends past sort of thing? Are we going to get a nice McConaughey cameo? What's the uh, flapper version of all right, all right, all right? It didn't seem honorable for him to be dining with an ex-Corine and listening to jazzful memoirs of their past. He had long since parted with all that. But it was good to hear a friendly voice. And he hadn't heard anything like Peggy's stimulating patois for several years. He paid the check and said, same old Peggy, aren't you? Come on, let's dance. Put on your red shoes and dance the blues. Hey, don't don't sing anymore or we have to pay for it. Okay. (laughs) In the middle of Sweet Lady, Peggy sighed and declared, You always were a wonderful dancer, Jack. He was pleased as a kid. Why hadn't Marjorie ever told him that? When they parted at about 11, Peggy asked, Why don't you come out and see me work, Jack? I look spiffy as ever in my dishabilly. (laughs) Now that was a Cole Porter classic. Darling, you look spiffy in your dishabilly. (laughs) A dishabilly, clearly you don't know much about dishes or rockabilly. I don't want to have to sit and explain this to you. (laughs) I see. It's like if Reverend Horton Heat was uh, uh, a busboy. Yeah, it's a little bit of Zoot Suit Riot meets uh, Reverend Horton Heat. Uh, You've never seen movies in the making, have you? Come tomorrow. Impossible, Peggy. I'm sorry. I'm counting on finishing up tomorrow and leaving for New York. She pouted invitingly. It seems a darn shame to to leave you here so... ah. She pouted invitingly. It seems a darn shame to have to leave you so soon, after not seeing you for ages. A sigh and a Frenchy shrug. Okay, now I think I realize with that and the reference back to the stimulating patois that you were retroactively supposed to be doing a French accent uh, on this character. But, um, uh, you know, we'll fix it in post. All right. I was going to do the whole voice as Frenchie from Greece, but... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, but I can't. Okay. Well, if you should have a second to spare, Hal Harris Studio, Selma Avenue, Hollywood, is the address. Ask anybody you see how to get there. Uh, anybody? Uh, yes, you there. Yes, you, the grape farmer with the organized <laughs> labor sign. Where are the pictures? <laughs> She was stopping at the envoy for the night and wondered, half hopeful, half amused, if he would kiss her at the door. He didn't, and passed on to his own room. All right. You've been, uh, you've been chatting me up for a while, Rob. Why don't you give your voice a break, and we're going to head on into the intermission. So, Rob, let me ask you, what did you think this story was going to be about just from the title, No Place for Husbands? Well, from the title, No Place for Husbands, I assumed it was going to be a story focused on a woman, not on a lascivious man who uh, has become a businessman from a sordid past. I kind of thought it was going to be a woman who, you know, she had no room for men. She was a take charge kind of 20s gal. She was wearing pants. She was 
trying to vote, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> trying to vote? Wow, <laughs> how outrageous. Um, no, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I was kind of like halfway between a um, Little Women-ish type situation of, you know, young, uh, young, just uh, reaching the age of kind of maturity uh, uh, women, um, like entering their force forays of romance mm-hmm. um either that or mm, gas station truck stop oh also, no oh, place no. for husbands no you know no place for husbands right so uh, <laughs> all right what do you what do you think so far where where are we headed with this the basically? rest the rest of the story is just her father reorganizing the fruit company that's it right so that's that's option one option two is he um He's gonna he's gonna jazz his way through that town. You know what I mean? Oh, yes, I do know what you mean. Well, now I do. I do at the beginning of the no. story because um, I was raised as a good boy. But um, I, I think I get what you mean now. It's yeah. it's a lot of context clues to pick up. Um, or number okay. three, it's morality tale, and he gets VD. So mm, yeah. those are the options. All right. Well, why don't we head on into part two of our story, and we'll find out. Let's go. Chapter 6. John's business conference the following day lasted until noon. Then further action was postponed until the next morning, pending the arrival of an important banking man from San Francisco. Harlan wondered what he would do with himself in the meantime after writing his daily stint to Marjorie. One twenty-two today. No further updates. You know, in relation to these letters, I'm really waiting for the Ken Burns version of the story, where there's just uh, people reading these letters over slow images of letters and pictures of John and fruit. I think that'll be interesting. He had resolved to think no more about Peggy Dubois, but over a lonesome cigar at lunch, he permitted himself to toy with her suggestion that he he visit the studio. He framed an alibi. And double-matted it. Really <laughs> fancy. Harlan and company handled the, handled the financing of several motion picture concerns. It was his duty, only 30 minutes from movie land, to view something of the industry at hand. His duty. His conscience was quite alabaster as he hired a machine at 2 o'clock and bade the chauffeur to drive to the Hal Harris studio. Okay. Hal Harris is Definitely a Stanley character. Probably some kind of gamma ray squid man. Uh, absolutely. Thinking squid man. Um, thinking, you know, one of his schoolmates. He goes on a different field trip. And so the spider one. Uh, he falls in the aquarium tank. Gets attacked oh, by it. Yeah. He gets inked by a radioactive squid. Boom. He has the power to stick to things just like Spider-Man. But oh, instead of shooting webbing, he shoots uh, black ink out of his ass. Yeah, now that's an origin story I'd like to see remade six times. (laughs) A swift run over a hard, dusty road, and John was walking under a high wooden arch into the Harris lot. He entered the door marked Office in a low, single-storied building. Near the door, a short-sleeved young man with a cold cigarette stuck between his lips was clacking a typewriter. Um, note to self. Ding! Learn to type. Ding! Light cigarette. Ding! He looked at Harlan, 
looked again, and stood up respectfully. How do you do, Mr. Holland? He smiled his best, though evidently wondering what the blazes the banker was doing there. John was taken rather by surprise. How did you know me? He asked, rather pleased. I guess any wide-awake newspaper reporter might recognize John Harlan by sight. I used to be a reporter before I went into publicity work. Were you looking for anyone in particular, Mr. Harlan? Right, okay. Cool your scoops, Bernstein. (laughs) John hesitated. He felt a little embarrassed. Much as he had when a callow Lawrenceville boy, he dropped backstage for his first chorus girl. There was no need, he thought, of telling this press agent all his business. Perhaps Peggy wasn't around. I uh, thought I'd like to see some movie-making from the inside, he explained. This studio was the handiest. Uh, yeah, I was just on the Universal tour and I uh, fell off the trolley and I just kind of stumbled over here. I don't even know. Is this Los Angeles? Who knew? Oh my god, it's so hot. I thought it was in Death Valley. <laughs> The press agent scented publicity possibilities. I was shooting some interiors out on the studio floor, he suggested. I'd be glad to show you around. John nodded, and the PA led the way through a pine door at the back of the room. The studio interior was a broad expanse of wooden floor, bare except for one set in a far corner. Things seemed to be quite lively over there. Electricians were jerking around, banks of Klieg lights mounted on wheels. A girl in the smeary yellow makeup of the movies and wearing a daringly cut bathing suit passed and smiled at John. Do you think the daringly cut was like, you can see some knee? You could definitely get neck. I mean, full neck. My, oh my. The press agent asked his visitor to wait a moment in the middle of the floor. John didn't mind. He was boyishly interested. Through a line of Kleegs barricaded the set off from the rest of the studio. Oh. Let me say that again. Hold on. The press agent asked his visitor to wait a moment in the middle of the floor. John didn't mind. He was boyishly interested, though a line of Kleegs barricaded the set off from the rest of the room. The publicity man came up briskly, with a tall, stoop-shouldered man in a I'm sorry, what is that word? Put putties? Putties? Putty putties? 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 Hutties? I mean, um see when a niplick loves <laughs> a putty very much, Rob. You get that's what a, a tall stoop shouldered men wear in the twenties. Okay. He he was swarthy and had a mustache like that of a villain in a Bill Hart shootin' film. And by the way, I just want to point out for everybody, shootin' is actually an apostrophe. That's the Old West. They didn't have time for G's. Mr. Harlan, this is Mr. Siegel, our director and Western manager for Hal Harris Productions, introduced the PA. (laughs) Mr. Siegel, have you ever seen Coogan's Bluff? (laughs) Honored to think a big man like you would visit our little studio, drawled Siegel bootlickingly regarding John with a jaundiced and rather shifty eye. I'm sorry, uh, Rob, can we just get another take with you upping the boot licking just a little more, please? Honored to think a big man like you would visit our little studio. Yes, very boot lickingly. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, like Like to watch us work a little? 
They escorted their visitor across the studio floor and through the Klieg stockade. The set, was, which was built to represent the lobby of a summer hotel, was bathed in a strong white light. John walked over a soft carpet. A cushioned divan occupied the center of the lobby, and there were soft cushions on the carpet around it. And here it comes with the casting mm-hmm. couch. Now, John, you've got to understand, pretty financiers with you, like you from New Jersey are dime a dozen here in L.A., so you're going to have to play ball <laughs> if you want the big parts. I mean, you do want to be in this picture, right, John? Yeah, I mean, you didn't just stumble through the door for no apparent reason, right? <laughs> Draped at ease upon the cushions was a group of pretty girls clad uniformly in rather startlingly, rather startling pink single-piece bathing suits. They eyed the visitor. Wow, single-piece. Uh-huh. Yeah. Startling single-piece. They eyed the visitor with mild curiosity. Suddenly, one of the girls sprang up from a cushion and hurried over to John. He recognized the lithe form of Peggy. Oh, you decided to come after all, Jack, she approved. That's fine, you always were a game sport. Siegel frowned and the PA opened understanding eyes. They're boning. Yeah. Let's go to the catering truck. Get some empanadas. Oh, okay. I understand. Peggy calmly appropriated Harlan, ignoring them both, and prepared to cast a little bomb among her fellow mermaids. Well, girls, she announced grandly, this is my friend, the famous Wall Street banker Jack Harlan, whom you've heard me mention before. John wished she would be a little more tactful, but he found himself shaking hands with more names than he could possibly remember. A little sea of creamy legs, trim hips, and pink toes seemed to be churning around him. No, ooh, it sounds like he's describing some sort of bisque. <laughs> you know what the worst part is, too? All what? those ladies are a hundred years old now. Uh, just, just. <laughs> I mean, John's no spring chicken now either. I'm sure right, he's. Right. I don't think he's got creamy legs anymore. Right. They must wiggle into their costumes with shoehorns, he thought. The old, familiar smell of grace paint was in his decorous nostrils. Back in the merry, merry world of make-believe, home in Harlan and Company, 3,000 miles away, he tossed back his head and laughed like a boy at one of Peggy's sallies. I bet he's a good scout, he heard one girl whisper. He was a wee below once, ladies, but now... And she's a brownie. He liked that. (laughs) He liked that and accepted Peggy's invitation to a seat on the divan. Peggy slid down beside him. The other girls grouped around them. Too bad you didn't bring your bathing suit, Jack, laughed Peggy. They're going to cut loose the water power in a little while and wash us out of the lobby. Siegel thinks that'll make a nifty scene. We're going to get doused and deliced. The other girls chimed in with rollicking comments. John's boyish laughter was infectious. Why didn't why didn't you ever become a movie actor, Jack? Josh Pecky. Gosh, you've got Willie Reed skinned a mile for looks. I I bet if we were uh, in our eighties, that would mean something, Alan. Yeah. Well, um, I I didn't go to the nickel shows back then, so no. I can't Wally tell Reed. you who Wally Reed is. <sighs> 
You said it, Peggy, the dignified Mr. Harlan retorted. The producers don't know what they're missing when they pass me up. (laughs) Why all the financiers back home tell me I'm just the dreamiest. (laughs) At instant, something flashed into the brain of the press agent standing interestedly, interestedly near, and he drew Siegel excitedly to one side. A moment later, the drawly voice of the director came to John's ear. You, uh, wouldn't mind us taking a little picture of you, would you, Mr. Harlan? John calmed down a bit, and a little of his usual reserve asserted itself. I was just joking, of course. I really must be go. Oh, come on, Jack. Let him shoot us still. Show us your second Rudolph Valentino, urged Peggy. The other girls boisterously agreed. Jack looked from one gay feminine face to the other. Well... He admitted, I suppose it will be all right. Sure. I'm not married or anything. <clears throat> but he he really hadn't weighed the propriety of it in his mind for a second. And in his present exhilarated mood, nothing, no matter how rash, would have phased him. Feased him. Uh, murder a man with a hatchet? Well, I suppose it'll be all right. <laughs> he had slipped, for the time being, from the proper John Harlan Mar- Marjorie knew into the wild Jack Harlan who used to wait at the New Amsterdam stage door for Peggy. Spiegel spoke to the cameraman. The bathing beauties pressed more closely around John, and he smiled into the dancing eyes of pretty Peggy. At a word from Siegel, the cameraman turned the crank a few times, and the intimate tableau was recorded as celluloid. A few minutes later, John took his leave of Peggy and her companions and jumped into the hired roadster at the curb. During the ride back to Los Angeles, the foam was slightly blown off, and John wondered vaguely if he had been dangerously indiscreet. He was quite sure that Marjorie, if she knew of his adventure, would be wild. Well, he seems really in touch with his wife's feelings, so he would know. Absolutely. He's constantly thinking about her. Yeah. The entire time he's looking at the vivacious women, he's thinking, oh, my wife would look great in this bathing suit. I'm going to have to tell her what temperature it was. (laughs) Chapter 7 The tinkle of John's room telephone woke him at 8.30 the next morning. The message that came over the wire in the excited voice of Peggy brought him down into the lobby of the envoy with the speed of a fire chief bound to a blaze in an orphan asylum. (laughs) Annie too, the reckoning. (laughs) Peggy pushed him to a corner settee. I have a 10 o'clock call at the studio, she warned, her pixie face unnaturally grave, so you'll have to get this quick. Part of it is my fault. I shouldn't have invited you out to the studio, and it was up to me to warn you that this company I'm working for is kind of a shyster fly-by-night outfit. Siegel, for instance. I wouldn't trust as far as I could see him. He's N.G. Yeah. (laughs) He's a new gangster. I mean, the OGs have to retire on their pensions at some point. The N.G.s come up, and they start selling wood in the hood word well after we had finished work last night i happened to walk through the outer office and i heard siegel and the press agent laughing over something your name was mentioned so i lingered around and listened in gosh this sure is a tough thing to spring on a man's empty stomach but jack those high binders are planning to work that shot of you and me and the girls into the picture we're just finishing the film is called the gay millionaire so you come in fine uh hold on a second i'm just I got to take a sip of water. 
Uh, I'll continue. Siegel and the PA think it's a great stunt. A bathing girl comedy with a well-known guy like you in the cast. Uh, a bathing girl comedy is a genre you don't see much anymore. I think it's it's like basically that movie and Splash and Cocoon. And Psycho. But not as much of a comedy. But I laughed. Yeah. You got to hand it to them. It is. Of course, they don't dare advertise your name, but they can noise it around privately. And after one person has seen the picture, the news will spread. Don't worry about that. You'll be packing them in all over the country. Peggy even permitted herself a smile. It was a nice little family group, wasn't it? All us girls in our cute little bathing suits. I hope you're having a jealous wife, Jack. <laughs> jealous, uh, he exclaimed through set teeth. He had been thinking of Marjorie. Well, it's about time. <laughs> Peggy, it's awful. His brain was whirling like a Ferris wheel. The damnable luck of it. One little skid off the straight and narrow. An innocent one at that. And here was a misrepresenting, compromising picture threatening to tell the whole world, including Marjorie, about it. Marjorie, dear suspicious Marjorie, would be horrified. Dear, <laughs> dear suspicious, totally correct Marjorie. Dear suspicious, 100% right that this guy was going to be a horn dog later in totally his life. Totally justified in thinking that her husband was a dog. Marjorie. <laughs> likely, likely she would wish to divorce him. Faraday would be shocked and angry. All Wall Street would believe he had slipped back into the wild, irresponsible ways again. Confidence in him would be irretrievably shaken. Terrible! <laughs> All of Wall Street. Finally, the true cause of the 29 stock market <laughs> crash is revealed. This guy is a horn dog. The waves it would send through. Oh my god, have you heard that there's a financier who's having a little on the side? The horror! Chorus girls, how will we ever not jump out of our office buildings? <laughs> he was thoroughly aroused and snapped to Peggy, What's this man Siegel's game? Blackmail? Perhaps, said Peggy. Better come back with me to Hollywood and see, after you have your breakfast. Don't want any breakfast? Come on! Like a man of action, he doesn't need breakfast. I like that. Seizing his hat in her arm in nearly a single motion, he dashed out of the hotel with her and across the curb to a freelancing taxi. He shouted directions to the driver and plied him freely with lucre to ensure the yeah. maximum <laughs> to ensure the maximum of speed. Uh, here's the five. Yeah. No. Ten. Giddy up. <laughs> in twenty minutes, the boiling machine jerked to a stop in front of the Hal Harris studio in Hollywood. John threw more, some more silver dollars at the driver, and he and Peggy hustled through the studio gate and up to the door-marked office. This Harlan unceremoniously yanked open, neglecting to knock. The young cyclone rather took by surprise Siegel and the press agent, who were conferring near the latter's desk. Uh, good morning, Mr. This from the strawling Siegel, with an attempt at business as usual. What have you done with me, with that picture that you took of me yesterday? John hurled at him, tossing diplomacy to the dogs. Like it was a Nyla bone. <laughs> the smile of the smug seagull vanished, and the publicity man looked a little frightened at their visitor's vehemence. 
won't you have a chair? Another attempt by Siegel. I've no time to sit down. Where's the picture? Why, Mr. Harlan, Siegel drawled with an attempted sly conciliation. I thought you understood that the picture was to become our property. If you'll remember, you gave us permission to take it. I have witnesses. I know, but I didn't think it was going to be part of a movie. I understood it was just a private picture. I told you I don't know how to use Snapchat. (laughs) You got it under false pretenses. You made no restrictions about its use, Siegel persisted. You were talking about being an actor. I only took you at your word. John saw that he was dealing with a fox, and there was no use wasting fancy language. He was not sure about the law in the case, but he was sure that he didn't want lawyers and their little playmates of the newspapers mixed up in it. Once let it it get to the ears of Marjorie, he turned abruptly to Siegel. How much do you want for the picture? Why, I don't get you, bluffed the director. John's short laugh was derisively mirthless. Yes, you do. How much money to turn over the picture to me and forget it? Come on. What's it going to take, Siegel? Thousands? <laughs> millions? Gay millions? <laughs> the director, sitting on the edge of the desk and nursing a bony knee in his clasped hands, was exasperatingly slow. Well, Mr. Harlan, believe me or not, if you was to offer me a million dollars, I couldn't be bribed. Bribed? No. Financially persuaded, though. Mm, yes. Every Tuesday night, we ship the film we've shot during the week to Mr. Harris's office in New York. He sends what he wants to the laboratory to be developed. It's cheaper that way. Siegel shrugged his narrow shoulders. Well, yesterday was Tuesday. I expressed your picture with the rest of the film to New York. Yes, you and that smart press agent doped out a night letter to Harris telling him how the film was worth a million dollars with Mr. Harlan in it. I heard you, Peggy interrupted. Dope. <laughs> Dope in out a night letter. <laughs> with the telling him how film was worth it. Um, Peggy interrupted, scorn and anger in her voice and eyes. You're a fine bunch of bum sports. You ought to be in San Quentin. Why, you're a bum wrestling. You're bum hockey. You're not bum bowling, though. That isn't a real sport. Not yet. Let's wait until the 2028 Olympics. She caught at Harlan's arm. Come on, Jack. You can't get any satisfaction out of this slick fish. The only true word he... (laughs) The only true word he said was that he ships film to New York on Tuesdays. I mean, that man, he's a a real pan-seared tilapia. He's a... He's a real cedar-planked grilled mahi-mahi steak, if you catch my meaning. (laughs) She urged the undecided John toward the door, turning to Siegel long enough to announce haughtily, You can tear that ten o'clock call of mine up. I'm through with wearing tights for four flushers like you. Is is that a poker term? Uh, No look on the turn, but he gets a four flusher on the river and takes the pot. (laughs) A visibly distracted John and Peggy piled into the waiting taxi and sped back toward Los Angeles. Now, don't worry, Jack, encouraged Peggy on the way. You just hustle back to New York, quick as you can, and see Harris. He has an office on 7th Avenue. Bluff him a little, and then if the old crab don't come through, flash a fat bundle of bills in his face. 
and you'll get your debut in the movies back fast enough. I hope to God you're right, Peggy, wailed John from the depths of the seat into which he had slumped moodily. Jeez. Why me? All I wanted to do was cheat on my wife without her finding out. What is wrong with this world where a man can't sit on a couch with a bevy of half-dressed beautiful women without getting into a little bit of trouble with his wife? <sighs> I mean, they're bathing beauties. I thought that I'd just take a bath. Unfair. As he reached the residential outskirts of Los Angeles, he suddenly remembered that, after all, he had come to California on business. He pulled out his watch and saw that it was 11 o'clock. I'll have to go to the meeting. I can just make it, he said. Maybe this damned business will be finished this afternoon. I'll be able to start right back east. Too bad that Los Angeles-New York airplane line hasn't started yet, sighed Peggy encouragingly. Wow. <laughs> yeah, prescient. I, uh, that, uh, <laughs> that one flight from L.A. to New York is pretty hard to get a seat on these days. I, I question how encouragingly that is <laughs> that you could say it's it's not encouraging to be like, well, too bad you can't take an airplane that's going to be around in 10 years or so. Hey, too bad you couldn't fly a starship up your ass. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Oh, oh no. that? what about that time machine you were? Oh, right. You there are no time machines. No, but you you go ahead. I mean, you you work on that. Chapter eight. For the time being, John's tide of ill fortune changed. The arrival of the San Francisco banker, armed with authority, papers, and a hearty dislike for Los Angeles, caused the business to be concluded about five in the afternoon, and the new officers of the Pacific Fruit Company duly installed. Mr. Berry, Mr. Kiwi, Mr. Mangosteen, <laughs> welcome aboard. I'm sorry, Mr. Durian, the board has voted you out. <laughs> this stinks! At eight, <laughs> at eight, Harlan, worried and impatient, boarded a transcontinental Pullman for the east. Off to the exotic and mysterious Atlantic seaboard. By the second day, he had concluded that the trip would last forever. He perspired and swore freely, ate very little and slept hardly at all. He snapped at genial trainmates who, recognizing the famous John Harlan, tried respectfully to pick an acquaintance. He glared at flappers who openly admired his good looks from behind magazines. I curl my dark locks for me, not for your benefit, ladies. He quarreled with all the waiters and made a lifelong enemy of a prominent Chicago banker who had been attending the specific fruit reorganization. Eight times John refused the latter's invitation to be the fourth man at bridge. And then the ninth time he sent the Hoyles assassins. <laughs> this is clearly setting up for a sequel. Clearly. Marjorie was waiting just outside the grilled gate at the Pennsylvania station when the train slid in at 11 on the evening, in the evening. Faithful Marjorie. Oh, faithful, 100%, rightfully suspicious Marjorie. <laughs> oh, faithful and completely figured out the whole thing, Marjorie. John felt like a criminal as he forced a sickly grin into his face at the sight of her and hurried up, followed by a sleepy red cap with his bags. Marjorie looked as fresh and pretty as a daisy. Light blue sports suit, white socks, and sandals. Cool as a clover club amid the perspiring station throng. Every strand of her velvety blonde hair in place. Gad, 
Fancy losing such a woman as that, thought John. Worth a thousand peggies. On the blonde market. (laughs) What a dumbbell he had been. He kissed her. Why, has anything been the matter with you, John? Marjorie asked at once, looking at his flushed face closely. Have you been ill? You didn't write me about it. Amongst your detailed temperature readings and barometric pressure indicators. I know what you had for breakfast every day, but you didn't mention sleeping with any women. John laughed. A rather poorly done laugh. Why, I've been fit as a fiddle, he lied. You look great. (laughs) Not at all nervous and pale, like you were guilty of something while I was in California. (laughs) He meant that. Let's go home as quickly as we can. That was about the extent of his garrulousness for the night. All the way across the ferry in the limousine and through light-dotted Jersey City and Newark. And over the open country to Long Hills, he sat morosely and answered her eager questions with monosyllabic grunts. Several times she looked at him curiously, and in the semi-dark, her face began to take on a worried look also. There's something wrong with you, John, she declared bluntly, when they were preparing for bed. She put her two white hands upon his shoulders and looked intently into his face, which he was trying vainly to camouflage. Uh, 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 I'm not here. I'm just part of the couch. You can't see me. Sheet over my head means she can't see me at all. No, there's not, dear, he protested too vehemently. I'm fine, but tired. At ten o'clock the next morning, he visited the New York office of Hal Harris Productions, intending to get quick action. Marjorie had started asking solicitous questions again at breakfast. He must look more suspicious than ever by daylight. Uh, the curse of the guilt vampire. (laughs) She had even made a semi-joking remark about the movies. You didn't see a movie star in Los Angeles that you liked better than your wife, did you, John? And she had watched him closely for the answer. That was bad. Yeah, that's bad. She's about to check your DMs for a side chick, dude. <laughs> he swiped left. Um, when a tough little office boy admitted him into Hal Harris's presence, Harlan found himself facing a flashily dressed, stoutish man with a prominent nose and a voice several shades too loud. He pulled a greasy black cigar from his mouth long enough to ask John to sit down. He'd evidently recognized the banker at sight, for he spoke his name. I guess you know why I'm here, Harlan began abruptly. You know, for once I would like someone to just not recognize him on sight and be like, uh, no, and get the fuck out of my office. (laughs) No, doors just open to John Harlan. He is a prince among Uh, men. John Harlan, you remember how I like to have sex with chorus girls? Sure you do. Harris shrugged his fat shoulders. I don't know, Mr. Harlan. Maybe you want to buy my company. Your father bought my other company. He waited until I was nearly broke and bought me out and then kicked me out. That was a fine way to treat me, wasn't it? Are you kidding me that this story adds an actual plot? Mm -hmm. Two pages before the ending? At the end of the story, all of a sudden, there's a grudge against his dad. All right. <sighs> the semi-malicious light in Hal Harris's eye did not augur well. Well, it's only semi-malicious. Uh, so, you know, it's I'm kind of bi-evil. A demi-villain, <laughs> if you will. 
John learned where Harlan and company had acquired one of their motion picture interests. The banker pulled himself together as well as the past hectic week would allow him. Maybe I would consider buying you out, a little share in your company anyway. The picture business is very poor just now. Probably you could use a little money. Harris laughed ominously. Not a nickel. So, uh, less than a nickel? (laughs) Deal. He is a good businessman. John cleared his parched throat. All right. Now that we've settled that, Mr. Harris, how much do you want for that picture Siegel inveigled me out of, inveigled out of me in Hollywood? Would you rather I turn the matter over to my lawyers? Mr. Harlan, the movie man said slowly, I'll admit I know what you're talking about. I want you to see this situation from my standpoint as well as your own. You are one of the best known millionaires in this country. People say that you had a rather interesting past. And my audience loves man sluts. <laughs> At one point, I believe you were rumored to be engaged to a Follies girl named Peggy Dubois. My director right, wires me that this is a moving picture showing the same Miss Dubois and you and some others. A moving picture, just like they have at Hogwarts. <laughs> well, what am I going to do? The picture's worth... How much? Cut in John. It was a fearfully hot day and he was perspiring like a stoker. Like a midnight broker? No, not enough pompatus. Harris pulled himself ponderously out of the chair. Mr. Harlan, he said. Your father put me out of business once, and I don't owe you any favors. I wouldn't sell you that picture for all Harlan and Company owns, and that's final. John threatened, cajoled, and offered to bribe for a few minutes longer. He saw that further argument was futile. Finally, he walked slowly to his car and was driven downtown. Probably to the Flapper District. He thought of consulting a lawyer, but became panic-stricken as he imagined a publicity attending a lawsuit. During the next week, John approximated the mental tortures of a prisoner in the death house at Sing Sing and a bridegroom facing the wedding ceremony combined. (laughs) Marriage is a prison. Got it. He had the heart for very little work. Faraday inquired anxiously what was the matter. His secretary regarded him curiously as he dictated in faltering accents and almost chewed his pencil in two. I'm sorry, sir. Can you repeat that? Um, I said to <laughs> confirm. Mr. H, I'm just asking you what you want for lunch. He went to see Harris again twice, but the producer was obdurate. Oh, okay. Come on. Try to keep it clean. <laughs> and Marjorie. Marjorie kept asking questions. Again, rightfully so. Had something dreadful happened in California that he was hiding from her? Her eyes were always upon him. Like Santa. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. He took to reading the moving picture columns in the newspapers, thinking perhaps there would be a hint as to when things were going to pop. One morning he gasped as going in on the train, his eyes caught this item. New Hal Harris sensation. Hal Harris, the comedy man, is said to be preparing a picture for release that will be an absolute sensation. It is called The Gay Millionaire. And one of the best-known millionaires in America, it is rumored, 
makes his cinema debut in the comedy, together with Peggy Dubois and the other famous Paris bathing beauties. John took his hat off to cool his swimming head. The dike was about to burst. The little Dutch boy's about to give. No, Dutch boy, no. When he reached his office, he thought rather irrationally of flight and instructed his secretary to call up a number of European steamship companies about sailings. Uh, 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 do you sail? I thought with the steam engine. No? No? Oh, but that's all I needed to know. Thanks. One. <laughs> he's not, at least he's not acting suspiciously. Speeding across the Jersey Meadows that evening in the homebound train, he caught sight of a newly pasted billboard. In shouting letters, it read, Hal Harris's latest and best, The Gay Millionaire, the comedy knockout of the year with, parentheses, the best-known millionaire in America, end parentheses, and the famous Harris Bathing Girls. It's a riot! Why, it's the Attica of bathing girl comedies! <laughs> You'll come and spend a dog day afternoon with us. John agreed grimly with that last line. When he reached home, Marjorie took one penetrating look at him and wanted to telephone at once for the doctor. You simply must tell me what's the trouble with you, John, she declared. Is there s some other woman? No, no, honey, no, no. Women. Dozens, really. <laughs> I... <laughs> Her blue eyes were half-filled with tears. John stalled her off desperately all evening, swearing eternal and exclusive love and devotion every few minutes, and stole away the next morning for New York without awaking her. The end, he felt, was very near. Amen. I'm coming, Elizabeth! <laughs> Greedy! Um, that's the only impression I could do of, of Fred Fox. Greedy! Yeah, I, I, yep. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Chapter 9. John Harlan sat slumped in his chair, gazing dejectedly over the tops of the lesser skyscrapers into the busy traffic of the North River. He did not hear his secretary's voice until she came very close to him and said distinctly for the third time, Mr. Harris on the wire, sir. Yes, sir. Mm, season four. Yes, it was a little bit of a letdown. <laughs> We just lost our listener making fun of the wire. You gotta think, you gotta watch that. John only half caught the name as he lifted the receiver off the hook. Mr. Holland, came Harris's husky voice, strangely pleasant. If you'll drop up here right away, there's a chance we could do something about that picture business. Fairly flinging the receiver back in its place, John was out of the office like a whirlwind. He hailed a taxi and fidgeted madly on the seat until he reached his destination. Oh, oh, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? The waiting Harris looked like a corpulent sphinx. Tycho Brahe? With a copper nose. Uh, have a seat, Mr. Harlan, he invited. John, who had recovered his equilibrium, partially obeyed. Well, announced Harris, I've changed my mind. I'll sell you the picture and name you a liberal price. $20,000. Okay, now hold on, Rob. Tycho Brahe has the silver nose because he doesn't uh, have the nose, okay? All right? Right. Okay. So, All right. 
that means he was the ghost all along. Yes. Yes. Why did, why do I have to keep explaining this? Jeez. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Okay. Yeah. John winced. The figure was steep, but he dared not think twice about it. He swallowed hard, took his checkbook from his pocket and scribbled for a moment. Um, 20,000 to the account of fat bastard. Not a check. Void. Void. Here you are. Uh, I'll just take my picture and leave very quickly. Memo. Uh, hiding bathing beauties from prying eyes forever. Okay, here you go. The figure was steep, but he dared not think twice about it. He swallowed hard, took his checkbook from his pocket, and scribbled for a moment. He held the check out toward Harris and demanded cautiously, Where's the film? The producer reached under his desk and brought up a circular tin. You won't have to open it here, he grinned. I've written out a receipt, and I'll guarantee that this film contains the negative of your picture. And the only one there is. (laughs) I mean, the... Pleasure doing business. (laughs) Without waiting to verify this, John turned over the money and, clutching his precious can of film close to him, he whisked an elevator to the ground floor. In the taxi, he sighed. He already felt like a new man. When he reached the Harlan building, he handed the driver a crisp $20 bill and his best smile. Hey, it's $22.50. Wait a minute. This is 1922. Isn't $20 worth like... Hey, it's expensive. What are you you riding (laughs) me for? Could you buy a house for that much? You know these medallion systems? I mean, I'm barely breaking even. (laughs) Amos Faraday looked up from his desk as his junior partner hurried by. Why, John was actually whistling. Faraday was greatly relieved. John gaily dismissed his secretary for the day, though her desk was piled high with work. When he was alone, he regarded the can of film on his desk quizzically. Curiosity began to take possession of him. He chuckled like a youngster with a new electric train. He wondered what he looked like in celluloid. No harm in seeing. He could burn the film in a few seconds. Yeah, I mean, a little narcissism has never hurt me. Hmm? So, after a cautious and unnecessary look around, he opened the tin and pulled out the rolled celluloid, holding an end of it up to the sunlight that came streaming in through the window. An exclamation of surprise escaped him. Why, the film was as black as ink. He couldn't distinguish a thing. Deciding that the trouble was that he didn't know how to look at the thing, on an impulse, he rang for a boy. Uh, you boy, yes. I need your youthful peepers to glance at this film for the fleshly delights. Ask Mr. Hurlbert to step in, he instructed the youngster. Young Hurlbert was a member of Harlan and Company, who had charged who had charge of their moving picture financing branch and was alleged to know everything about the movies. Well, they cost five cents, and you get to eat popped corn, mister. (laughs) Uh, close the door, please, Herbert, began John. Herbert did so. I'm thinking of buying one of these little moving picture projection machines, prevaricated John. I've already gotten hold of this film, but it doesn't seem to be any good. I thought perhaps you could tell me what's the matter with it. And... Don't mention it if it's any pictures of me with a lot of half-naked women. He handed the strip of film over for Hurlbert's inspection. The latter walked to the window and held the film up to the light. 
as John had done. After a moment of squinting, he turned around. Somebody has deceived you, Harlan, he said. This film has been spoiled. It's undeveloped negative that's been exposed to the light, and it's no good whatever. Total amateur hour. Where did you get it? Oh, uh, some, um, thanks, old man. John made sure to take back his film. I'll get after the chap I bought it from. When Hurlbert was out the door, John called Harris. You lied to me about this film, he began heatedly. It's black, no good. How do I know whether I'm in it or not? Unless you're doing an invisible man picture. Did I, am I right? <laughs> I'll stop payment on that. Don't get excited, Mr. Harlan. He heard Harris's mocking voice. I know it's spoiled. That's the way you wanted it, ain't it? It saves you trouble. If you want to know how it happened, the negative came in the office from our studio undeveloped. My damned careless office boy opened the can while I was out and the sun got to it and ruined the whole picture. After we had the publicity and advertising started and everything. Where will I find another millionaire half so gay as you to star in the <laughs> film? But look here, Mr. Wild Jack Harlan. You're pretty damn lucky to get off so easy. Because I don't mind telling you that if it wasn't for that office boy, who has since been fired... I never would have sold you a foot of film for love nor money. And John, when he had replaced the receiver, agreed that he was lucky. He smiled. Wait, wait a minute. He had, he's been extorted by a man who had nothing on him. And never mind. He's <laughs> listen. If you if you go back through the story of this life, this man's life, this dude is lucky as hell. <laughs> It's true. Maybe we'd be half as lucky. He smiled and called up a ticket speculator, contracting cheerfully to pay $25 for two seats to the most expensive show in town. Having the call switch to the Hotel Biltmore, he ordered a private dining room for that evening. Then he got Marjorie on the wire. John Harlan intended to celebrate fittingly his return to the straight and narrow for life. <laughs> a movie studio observed John to himself when everything had been perfectly arranged, is no place for husbands. <laughs> the end. In the next issue, fired office boy pulls a fast one, turns into a millionaire smut peddler, and almost cheats on his wife. <laughs> All right, let's put this story to bed, Rob. All right, so what did you think? I think with that music, I should be setting my phone to vibrate and getting ready for the movie to start. Um, yeah. Uh, no, it was... Um, it ended with uh, the Lech completely getting away with everything. Uh -huh. And yeah. um, his wife never finding out. Right. And He's definitely never punished for his, his wandering eyes. Yeah, so um, basically, I think it's a great story, well written, and uh, it's something that yeah. we should, we oh, should yeah. all we should all take. The, <laughs> I think the author really used a lot of adjectives and metaphors, and maybe confused the two on multiple occasions. 
I liked how it started off strong with the jazz banter and then completely forgot about that halfway through. Um, and I really like how it saved until the last possible moment the fact that there was a man angry at his uh, business when that yeah, could have really eased. any. Oh, yeah. I could really have... any plot at all. Just last minute edition there. Just kind of a whoop, let's write that in. Okay. And it could have been easily foreshadowed. So, and I guess it kind of was, but not well. So, yeah. this story, I, I think there's a reason why we, we haven't seen the movie yet of this story. And that. Okay. Well, tell me, tell me what you think if okay. you're going to sum it up for me. Okay. Imagine this. what is the moral? Of this story, No Place for Husbands. The moral is that if you're going to go out and somewhat cheat on your wife, it's all good as long as you are rich. See, I I think you're close. But I think it's if you're going to cheat on your wife, don't star in a film about <laughs> cheating on your wife. Okay, okay. With the lady you were going to cheat on your wife with, because um, that's not a great plan. Hold on, let me write this down. This could come in handy in my life. Well, uh, that about wraps it up for this week's episode. So, folks out there, Tune in next week for another exciting interrupted. Yeah, she was really faithful. I think that's that's really was one of the major themes, the lead motifs of the story that they just they hammered home, and then it didn't really have any payoff. Tail. Mm-hmm.